I'm sitting there at my office in midtown Baltimore. These protests and uprising situation are happening maybe a mile from me to the north and to the west. And I'm sitting there watching it on a live stream from Russia. And I'm going, why is Russia amplifying this stuff going on in Baltimore? It was a question that I couldn't fully answer at the time and one which that I would spend, you know, probably the next several years really trying to understand. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Dave Troy, an investigative journalist and technology entrepreneur who's been investigating the sources of disinformation and extremism and other online threats to democracy since the earliest days of the internet. He has a podcast called Dave Troy Presents, where he interviews people with knowledge in the area he covers, and he writes for the Washington Spectator. Dave was the first developer to use the Twitter API, and his data visualization work made it to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Dave runs a company called 410 Labs, which builds the email management tools Maelstrom and Chuck. Dave and I had a good conversation about his career and what he sees going on online, some of which was very unfamiliar to me. I'll be interested to hear what you think of Dave. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Dave Troy with Dave Troy Presents. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Dave. Hey, how you doing? Good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. So my name's Dave Troy, and I am presently doing a lot of work in the field of journalism. But my background is really that of a tech entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 14 years old and have been doing stuff in this kind of online space since I was about 12. So I've kind of had a front row seat to the development of um, you know, BVS is the internet. In about 1995, uh, I started an internet service provider uh, in the Baltimore area, a hosting company, and got involved with things like e-commerce and whatnot, built up that company and sold that in 2004. And around that time, I had some options in terms of what I wanted to do after having sold the company. So I worked for a little bit in Brazil, working with a voice over IP telephony provider there. I spent some time in London and in Germany working uh, in that space as well. And then in around 2007, I started kind of dabbling with some, I guess at the time you call them mashups, it was kind of the popular phraseology of this. But basically what I did was I took the Twitter API and married it to the Google Maps API, did a visualization project called Twitter Vision, 
which was actually the first real project to use the Twitter API. So I got to know Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone and uh, Williams and that whole crew as part of that, because I stopped by to see them in San Francisco and stuff, because my project had gotten maybe more buzz than Twitter <laughs> at that point. That project in turn got selected to be in the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 2008, which came as a surprise to me. It kind of opened my eyes to the idea that like, you should explore your curiosity and kind of see where things go. Because a lot of times, small kind of projects that just scratch an itch end up having an outsized impact on your life. And also in terms of satisfaction and finding things that you're good at that maybe you didn't know you were good at. So anyway, that, that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to some different things that I might want to explore. And I got real interested in network science and basically trying to understand the network connections between people on social media. So I started making maps of things like LinkedIn connections and maps of, of cities using Twitter data. So basically, instead of looking at a geographical map, look at a sort of a psychosocial map of you know a city like Baltimore or Washington or New York or whatever. And you start to find that people cluster in these like pretty predictable groups. Sports fans are going to cluster next to, you know, the classic rockers and the, you know, like everybody kind of like goes where they're supposed to go, but there are variations from city to city. And I found that really, really interesting. So I did a bunch of that kind of work between like 2012 and 2015 in particular and traveled around the world speaking around that. That kind of landed me right in the middle of this whole world of like disinformation. So if you recall back in like 2016, Cambridge Analytica was getting a lot of press and starting to become something that people were understanding as, you know, social media data was being used to target people. And so I started speaking about that because I knew a lot about it because that, that was basically what I was mapping out was how you could target people theoretically on social media. I started doing a lot of actually investigative work on figuring out what that was all about, how it worked, um, who was behind it, and sharing that information with a lot of journalists. And so... You know, I guess starting in late 2016, 2017, I was kind of acting as a research journalist. Along the time all this, I also had another software company so that I started in 2010 that makes some email tools. And so, you know, we've been doing that as well. And that's going along fine. And, you know, nice small company that chugs along. This is kind of what I've been doing during most of my time. But, but you know, splitting that with, with running the company and stuff, too. Anyway, where that's kind of led from 2017 to now is that I'm basically spending almost all my time doing journalism. And I've recently been publishing stuff through a Washington-based publication called Washington Spectator and putting out a lot of kind of preliminary research on Twitter because I think it's important for other people to have as well. And really just trying to figure out uh, how do we save our democracy from all of this craziness that's going on. And I think journalism is a big part of it. But the thing that I've kind of identified is that there's a big gap between what you might call intelligence, which is like stuff that we're pretty sure about and we kind of know. And then there's journalism, which is stuff you have to be 100% sure about and really know. <laughs> and the public's need to have... Some kind of intelligence capacity uh, is is present, but has not really been met. So I'm looking at ways to maybe use my entrepreneurial skills 
to help fill that gap, either in a nonprofit way or a for-profit way or some combination thereof. I think that there's a real hole there because at the end of the day, we could have caught a lot of what's going on right now five, seven, ten years ago, but the capacity for sense making wasn't present. And we're just figuring out stuff now that I wish we had figured out five years ago. So, you know, that's kind of the journey that I'm on. It's always kind of twisting and turning and changing. But at each moment, I'm basically just kind of asking myself, how can I be most useful today and do stuff that I feel like is worth doing? Usually, if I keep it, that rewards come somewhere down the line and uh, it works out okay. So that's kind of what I've been doing. It's interesting for me because there's a lot of overlap between interests that I have. And I've been also in tech and uh, some interest in data and politics and certainly worrying as much as the next person about the democracy and talking to a lot of people about it. So I think you fit right into the type of person I like to talk to. Sure. I want to ask you about some of the biographical things that you mentioned just out of my own curiosity. Starting in high school, I guess, that first company. Yeah. Who were you when you were starting that? What kind of person were you? What was going on with your knowledge and skills and, I don't know, entrepreneurial attitudes that put you in a place to do that? It was ToadNet, right? Yeah, Toad Computers is what, what I started with. It was basically selling computers and software and stuff. And basically, really was born out of two factors. One was that my family had always kind of had an entrepreneurial response to things like my mom and dad had started some small, you know, service companies, uh, just the two of them doing stuff, photography and media type stuff. My mom started a magazine in the 70s. And then in 1980, they were faced with a situation where the small school that I was going to was going bankrupt for a variety of reasons. They basically said, well, I guess we could start a school. And so they got together with some other families and started a school. I would have been happy to go to a public school, but for various reasons, that didn't work out. For who I was at that time, I was getting really bored in the public school. And so, you know, they felt like they needed a more challenging curriculum. They basically created a new school that kind of borrowed some of the concepts from the old private school that had closed but really introduced kind of, you know, a new curriculum and a new approach. And it was very scrappy, very entrepreneurial. And it just kind of taught me, you know, I saw firsthand like, oh, well, there's a problem. Why don't we just start a school? <laughs> there should be no problem, right? And I think a lot of people thought that was kind of crazy. Nobody starts a school. Schools just exist, right? You know, that just kind of taught me that any problem that you might run into, entrepreneurship, you know, was, was an answer. It wasn't always the answer, but it was a possible answer. And so I, uh, in high school, had been doing a lot with like uh, online communities, like bulletin board systems. I ran my own bulletin board system, which was called Toad BBS at that time. So between like 1984, I guess, and 86, I was doing that, which gave me a marketing channel to <laughs> offer stuff for sale. And so I actually went to go work for a computer store. I think 1985, locally run by some friends of mine who were also young entrepreneurs. They had started their own company. And so I was working for them in the afternoons and on Saturdays and stuff and learned a lot about that business and a lot of kind of things not to do <laughs> in running a business. Basically, I was working for them for about a year, two years. And, you know, at some point, I basically uh, just had too much work to do for school. <laughs> 
to go be working in the afternoons every day. And so I just kind of broke and quit that job and kind of regrouped. And another friend of mine and I who had worked at that same place decided that we wanted to kind of do our own thing, but we wanted to do it kind of on our terms. And so we just started a really small outfit that you know was able to resell wholesale products that we were getting from places that we learned that existed at the other job that we had. Um, And, you know, they were sort of annoyed about it. But at the same time, we were pretty small scale. It wasn't really a big deal. We ran that for a couple of years. And then in my like junior year of high school, basically one of the uh, manufacturers that we dealt with said, in order to buy from us wholesale, you have to have a retail shop. And so we said, well, you know, I guess we could start a retail shop. So we went and did that and secured a you know, very modest bank loan uh, that my you know, parents helped me with in terms of co-signing for it, but they didn't contribute anything financially. We bootstrapped the entire thing. That's kind of what got me into entrepreneurship. And then by virtue of operating a computer tech-oriented business during the late 80s and into the early 90s, um, you know, I, as the internet was happening, I was very plugged into all of that. So, you know, we were selling stuff on the internet before we set up an ISP. Once we had that capacity to sell stuff on the internet, then we thought, well, we have excess capacity. We'll sell that. So, you know, we started selling internet access in, in 1995. And that turned out to be a, a smart thing to do. And that in turn got me connected in with people that were working on starting their own telephone companies and things like that. And so it was just kind of, you know, being in the right place at the right time, but always kind of being entrepreneurially oriented. And I went to college through all that, too. Uh, I went to Johns Hopkins starting in 1989. And of course, I again thought, well, I'll work and go to school. You know, that ultimately came to a collision. So I had to take a break from school for a while and then go back to school. And so I got my degree in like seven years as opposed to four. But it worked out in the end. And I lived to tell the story. So, <laughs> What did you major in at Johns Hopkins? Well, a combination of things. I started thinking I wanted to do something like computer science. And I got you know some ways into that. There was a class where they wanted you to like write an operating system. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't have time to write an operating system. <laughs> like, you know, that's interesting. But like, I liked the part about, you know, C language programming and regular expressions and stuff like that, and all the data manipulation kind of stuff. But I, I had no interest in like, that particular tier. And I just was like, I'm not going to do that. So I basically, you know, pulled out of that. I had also been exploring stuff like cognitive science and various biology things. And, you know, I'm, I'm a person that's interested in all kinds of things. So I ended up getting a liberal arts degree. It's kind of circuitously. It's like a liberal arts degree with a heavy concentration of comp size, kind of who I am. But as it turned out, I couldn't have designed a better ter- curriculum to prepare me for like the next, you know, 30 years. Like that turned out to be a very prescient set of skills to bring to the table right now. And it's powering me to this day because my love of history, which is really what I ended up focusing on as I graduated from, from uh, college. And I wrote a whole thing about the 15th Amendment and did actually the very first online thesis at Johns Hopkins in 1996. So anyway, that turned out to be very good preparation. Yes, very interesting for me. i one of the few people who majored in computer science and then went on to into a PhD program in political science, which a lot of the computer science people thought was quite a step down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was interested in politics. 
I did all but the dissertation in that because yeah, um, that's what real work is. Yeah. Well, then I started a software company, kind of like your route in tech a little bit, and I felt that as a you know CEO or whatever that having all the other things that I studied as an undergraduate, the history and philosophy and political science and sociology and literature, things like that, made me a more whole person and more able to communicate with people and understand society. And my company was in the political space. So, you know, those are all useful good stuff. Tools. Great assets, yeah. for sure. Yep. So um, you sold that business, which is a, a kind of a lovely way to quit a job I've found. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you can pull that off, it's, yeah. it's great when it happens. You Tell know. me a little bit about that because that's kind of, that's a big moment in entrepreneurship also. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, just speaking really frankly, you know, when I was in my mid-20s, I started to look at, you know, financial planning and trying to figure out how I'm going to set up. My, you know, I got married my wife works works still with me in our businesses. We uh, really just kind of wanted to figure out what our plan was. And, you know, one of my financial advisors said to me, well, you know, at some point you could sell your business. And I was sort of like, well, I guess, yeah, people do that. But I didn't know that applied to me. So I kind of planted the idea in my mind that that would be possible. And I think, you know, with my very early kind of primitive understanding of things, I think part of the issue for a lot of entrepreneurs is that they, they embed themselves personally so much in the business that the idea of it being a transactable entity never even really crosses their mind. At some point in that journey, you kind of go, oh, well, this is kind of a thing. Maybe somebody else could take over, but I hadn't had that moment yet. So that was the beginning of that moment. And at the time, I was selling computers and, and software and stuff, which is a very go to the store, make your nut each day. It's very not repeatable. It's not recurring revenue. It's a tough business. It's just horrible. There are maybe some things that you can gain over time, like, you know, client lists that, you know, you have people that are always buying from you, something like that. But we hadn't figured out that infrastructure. And the niche that we were serving was bizarre enough. We were focused more on like art and music and stuff. Like we weren't doing so much small business IBM PCs, that kind of thing. So it was it was really not a thing. And so when I started to think about, you know, starting an internet service provider, that started to generate the idea of like recurring, repeatable revenue. And we were able to build up those revenue streams repeatably over time. And that there was things like life customer lifetime value and customer acquisition cost. And all of those metrics started to become more available, then I started thinking, well, this is something that I could sell. And we started getting offers for the company uh, once we got to a certain size. And this was, of course, right in the middle of the dot-com bubble, like 1999 kind of time frame. And so we were getting insane offers. You know, somebody offered us like $10 million, but it was going to be in stock in some company that was completely BS, you know. And so they had us go down to this this presentation in, in Naples, Florida, and like John Sununu's there, and these, these bigwigs from like ex AT&T executives and stuff. And I'm there with some other friends of mine who had similar businesses and who were also maybe looking to do a roll up with this company. And we realized pretty quickly that it was completely batshit insane. You know, I got probably two or three offers that were sort of in that category. 
of just being insane. And then around 2004, after kind of some downturns in the industry, like you'll recall, like the Enron thing and the WorldCom thing happened during that time, which caused some pressure in the ISP space. After all of that shakeout had occurred, things were sort of starting to return to reality. So we got an offer in 2004 that was very reality-based and all-cash deal, you know. And so it was like, okay, if you're going to make me a real offer, then we'll figure this out. It was something where we could have stayed in it indefinitely, but there were changes happening within the industry. You know, we were doing a decent amount of dial-up business at that time, but things were obviously transitioning into broadband and cable companies had some advantages in that regard. We were still selling a lot of broadband through other mechanisms, but it was going to be a slog. And I had other things I wanted to do. And frankly, I wanted to take some money off the table after being in business for almost 20 years. (laughs) So it was nice to be able to have that opportunity. And the people that we ended up working with were very honorable and reputable and all of that. And so our customers had a good time with it. And it all worked out great. So that was a, a nice episode. Yeah, I can see that. What was Popbox? That was a project that we developed after we sold the, that company, which was really rooted in the voice over IP space. So basically doing phone calls over the internet, which at that time was somewhat novel and posed some interesting, innovative solutions. So we built a tool to allow volunteers to do basically phone banking for political campaigns that we deployed in the 2006 cycle primarily. Really did it just to kind of see like how it would work. Is it viable? So basically the idea being that like volunteers working from home or a phone bank, if they choose to be at the campaign headquarters, would call in to this PBX system, private branch exchange system, that would do predictive dialing to lists of people that were, you know, opt-in on their campaign list and give them an opportunity to talk to voters and whatnot. It worked out pretty well. Uh, it was an interesting technology. It was really bad business, though, just in terms of like getting politicians and, you know, campaigns to pay you and like the fact that they don't usually have money and that when they call you for problems, it's always Friday night at 9 p.m. We were working mostly with Democratic campaigns because we, we learned at that time that, hey, you can't really sell to both sides, you know, in the arms business. You have to kind of pick one. And also, you know, at that time, you know, I think it's important for folks to remember if they weren't around in the political realm at that time, things weren't quite so insanely partisan as they are now. The the concept of like a reasonable Republican like did exist then. It's not really a thing now, for the most part. We thought, you know, sort of naively, well, you know, we could figure out ways to sell to, you know, reasonable people. But in the end, it just turned out to be dealing with a lot of internal politics within like the Democratic Party and stuff. And Let's just say that that was not any better than it is now. And uh, I did not really want to spend more time working in that space. So we ended up licensing that software to another company in 2008 and retreating from that experiment. But it was an interesting project and, you know, a lot of fun to, to work on at the time. I got to go be part of campaigns in Maryland and Connecticut and, you know, several other places. So it was fun. You mentioned when you're talking about what you do now that you have a current company, which is the 410 Labs, right? That Correct, does yeah. email solutions. Tell me about the sort of the founding story for that and how that's gone. Yeah, sure. So um, that was started by a friend of mine and I in 2010. He was a former AOL executive. 
he actually started a search engine uh, company that he sold to AOL very early on in like the 90s, and then spent several years working for uh, Steve Case. And so he had some ideas for some projects that he wanted to try. So what we did was basically just put together a company founded around the idea of screwing around and trying to find some things that might work as products. And so uh, we built a product called Replies, which was kind of similar to Quora in some ways, where basically what we were doing was looking for questions that people were posing on Twitter and then allowing a forum for people to give answers to them that are high quality. It worked out pretty well, but it was difficult to monetize. The technology worked. It was just, it was difficult to see how we were going to get it to kind of the scale point where it was going to be worth spending time on relative to revenue possibility. I think if we were to do that again now, you might have an easier time of it in some ways. But at the time, it just didn't have a clear pathway to um, profitability. We tried a couple other things. We tried a short email service called Shortmail, which got some traction. Uh, It was basically the idea of like kind of combining Twitter with email where you could basically have kind of a short messaging service, but it ran over the email infrastructure. That was something that um, we experimented with and had like an iOS app for that. But the two products that we ended up settling on as being kind of viable long-term things were a product called Mailstrom, which is an email inbox, you know, cleanup tool and management system. And then another iOS app that's kind of the same idea called Chuck uh, that does pretty much the same thing uh, a little bit differently, but it's implemented entirely on the iOS device rather than in the cloud. Those two products are chugging along and doing their thing and growing and, you know, are providing a nice revenue stream for our, you know, small team and whatnot. So, you know, the idea with that is to kind of just let that grow to its whatever size it needs to be. And we'll see, you know, where that goes. It doesn't require too much of my time. So I can focus on some of the other things that I've been working on. How many people work in there now? That's about 10 people total. Yeah, pretty good, manageable enterprise with some scale. It's a nice size. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice size. Yeah. And they, you know, sort of revenue per employee is, you know, able to scale nicely. So why would I want to use that instead of Gmail or one of the other options? Well, what we find mostly is that, you know, these tools are used in addition to whatever else people are also using. So, you know, they're totally compatible with, uh, you know, Apple Mail or Gmail or whatever. But the bottom line is, let's say you're away from your email for like a day or two weeks or something because you're on vacation or something. Uh, Or even just when you wake up in the morning, you've got all this garbage and the, the interfaces of those tools are not very good at getting rid of garbage quickly. And so we basically take that getting rid rid of garbage task, which normally might be a several minute long task, maybe an hour if you're really in a bad way, to you know a few seconds, under a minute usually, um, and really automate several things that people always do. We can predict which emails you're going to want to delete and sort of do that predictably for you. So it's just it's a real time saver, and people get a lot of value out of it. Another overlap in our interest is in the area of data visualization. I have a small company that does data viz uh, similar in size and employees to yours. And I had followed your work without really identifying much about you with some of the things, some of the network diagrams and stuff that have been out there. I have a fascination for the idea that you can see patterns in things visually that you can't with words. You can sometimes 
make a lot out of a clever visualization of interesting data. It can be very fruitful. What's your connection to that? I guess my overall, you know, sort of interest in that is primarily rooted in network visualization, uh, which mostly I'm using what's called course-directed graph algorithms combined with what are called modularity class algorithms that detect communities of of, uh, similar connections between them. So basically, if there's one community that has more connections inside of it than another, that will be identified as a distinct community from a, a separate community that doesn't have as many connections to that community. What that tends to do is to give you a way to take to use the technical term, sparse matrix graphs of uh, you know connections between entities and to visualize them in a way that um, helps you understand how they're clustered, basically. So to use an analogy, people will get immediately. If you walk into a uh, high school cafeteria, uh, you'll immediately see a graph visualization of community groups. <laughs> you'll have the jocks and the nerds and the dweebs and the theater people and whatever, and they'll all be sitting at their uh, own respective tables. That's the kind of thing that you can generate with network visualization is a, is a way of understanding the, the um, affinities between groups. And in this crazy world that we're living in, which frequently will do stuff like mislabel attribution of stuff and say, hey, this is coming from people with these beliefs, but actually, if you look at their affinities, they're actually these people. Well, why is this mislabeled? Well, that actually helps you identify misinformation and disinformation, funnily enough. So that's kind of why I'm gravitating a lot towards that kind of visualization. I also appreciate really any other kind of good visualization, whether it's a quantitative type thing, all the kind of work that, you know, like Tufty has shown about, you know, good ways to present data I'm also fascinated by, but kind of my go-to thing is graph analysis. I think I've seen a visualization of Amazon, I think mainly just political books and how there's sort of two almost completely separate groups of people. Universes, yeah. People buying on the left and people buying on the right and not that many books that are bought by both people. Yeah, no, there's that kind of clustering is is really, really clear. And there's been some good graph visualizations of things like voting behavior in Congress over the years where, you know, it used to be that there was a lot of cross meshing between the left and the right. And then over the course of the last 50 years, it's gotten to be just two separate groups. I did a, a graph visualization of Congress's Twitter following, basically, which Congress people were following, which other Congress people. And I found something really fascinating in that. A, it broke very neatly into Republican and Democrat, but there was also a separate community for insurrectionists that stood out separate from the Republican and Democrat. And, you know, obviously there's a few exceptions here and there, but in general, people that either were or went on to support the January 6th insurrection were clearly identifiable merely from looking at Twitter follows which I think is insane. <laughs> and which is why that data needs more scrutiny, you know. How many people in that category? Well, uh, which the the insurrection. The, the insurrection, yeah. Well, so, you know, I guess in the house you've got 435. It was probably something like 40. Yeah, that's I would you know, guess about what you'd 40. expect. Yep. Yeah, the, you know. the Marjorie Taylor Greens and that and her I'll go sorry Andy Harris. Yeah. Yeah. And and Andy, the other guy from Arizona, uh, Biggs, 
Um, so anyway, yeah, that crew, uh, Jim Jordan, all of that clique, I think it's interesting, like the sort of mainstream Republicans, I think, don't want to be associated with them. And certainly the Democrats don't. So they end up kind of creating their own little weird clique, which is just, it's crazy. You can see that in Twitter data only. And we're not even talking about tweets, just who follows who. So disinformation is a subject that's come up intermittently on this podcast, just because it's shaped our politics, unfortunately, so much in the last seven years or so. Tell me about when you start to identify that and why and what kind of things you're finding. You know, I've always followed politics and stuff and, you know, doing the political consulting stuff in like 2006, you know, I've been aware of all sorts of things for years, but it wasn't really until, you know, I guess around 2014, 2015, that I started to become aware of what seemed like intentional poisoning of the information ecosystem. And I would say that the first time that I became kind of latently aware that something was up, (laughs) not entirely sure what, was when the Freddie Gray incidents happened in Baltimore, where, you know, he died under police custody. And then, uh, you know, there was a variety of rioting and whatnot that occurred afterwards. What I noticed at that time was that the only people that were really amplifying this or providing on-the-ground coverage of it was Russia Today, RT. I'm sitting there at my office in midtown Baltimore. These protests and uprising situation are happening maybe a mile from me to the north and to the west. And I'm sitting there watching it on a live stream from Russia. And I'm going, why is Russia amplifying this stuff going on in Baltimore? It was a question that I couldn't fully answer at the time and one which that I would spend, you know, probably the next several years really trying to understand. But the long and short of it was that, you know, Russia, even at that time, and I think also we know now going as far back as like Occupy Wall Street and uh, the Ferguson protests and whatnot was really looking to find ways to amplify what amount to dissatisfaction and dysfunction within the American landscape, cultural landscape. Realizing that something was up, I, that kind of stuck in my head. And then as you know, the 2016 election played out and it became clear that Russia was trying to influence that through various kinds of online manipulation, as it became clear that the Mercers were behind Cambridge Analytica, it became obvious to me that there was a real problem here. And based on all of the experiences that I'd had up to that point, I at least had enough information to dive into it and start to try to understand it. So I got invited to do a talk at TEDx Oxford in February of 2017. And so in preparation for that, I started to do a bunch of research on what was going on with Cambridge Analytica, how it worked, what we were seeing. I did a ton of research uh, to, to understand all that. So I met with some some reporter friends. I was in touch with Carol Cadwallader from The Guardian. I was in touch with a mathematician uh, in Switzerland named uh, Paul Olivier de Hay, who had done really the initial work to figure out how the Cambridge Analytica hack had worked, which was, it wasn't quite a hack. It was more of a, uh, almost a social engineering sort of <laughs> exercise, I suppose. But anyway, I learned everything that there was to know at that time about that. 
And so I used that as the basis for this talk that I gave in February of 2017. And on that same trip, I was going to do another talk at a conference in Riga, Latvia. And uh, I, uh, I had kind of an oh shit moment while I was on that trip because I had put together the philosophies of Alexander Dugan, Steve Bannon, uh, his reliance on the book, The Fourth Turning, which I actually have in the other room here, and this kind of apocalyptic vision that, you know, oh God, they really are going to try to push us into World War III. So I reached out to a friend who was close with Congressman Elijah Cummings, and I said, listen, you know, I think I kind of figured out something important here. Can you put me in touch with, with Congressman Cummings? And, you know, he was my congressman. It wasn't like I was, you know, doing an end run around anybody. I was just trying to get this to somebody that could do something about it. And so as I was landing on the tarmac in Riga, uh, Congressman Cummings was calling on my phone. <laughs> you know, and so I'm like, hey, Congressman, I'm just taxiing to the gate here in Latvia. But um, it looks like, you know, we're headed for World War III. Uh, maybe I can call you later and give you some more details. But, uh, you know, so that was kind of how this journey started, was kind of having a flash of vision of like, oh, God, this is where this is going. And, of course, this year has kind of proven that vision to be, I think, correct. And so, um, you know, I did give that information to Congressman Cummings. Of course, at that time, you know, the kind of – it was really early. You know, I mean, I only had so much information to kind of go on – but I had this huge sinking pit in my stomach that, oh, God, I figured it out. The last five years has basically been the process of closing that gap between that feeling of having figured it out and doing what needs to be done or responding to this threat, which is very real and which we're now living through. It's been a little bit of a combination of feeling like at any given time, you know, like Cassandra or the little boy with the finger in the dike or the boy who cried wolf because I was too early. <laughs> you know, I feel like if I had called World War Three, I don't know, you know, two years ago, that might have been better. Like, I don't know. You know, it's just like there's no way to kind of make this perfect. So at any rate, you know, Congressman Cummings took the information and we kept in touch uh, over the course of the next couple of years. And of course, he tragically passed away in 2019. And I actually interviewed him for one of his last public appearances at TEDx Mid-Atlantic in 2019. Um, and uh, he was actually going to do a talk there, um, you know, kind of a freeform talk, but he was not feeling well enough to really be able to do that. So I said, well, look, you know, come sit down. I'll do a kind of a back and forth with you. And I, I attempted to conduct an interview and found that he, in fact, had a quite extensive list of prepared remarks to deliver. So I was there, you know, really more as a midwife or something than anything else. But I was really glad to be able to honor him in that way by by giving him that opportunity to deliver that. That was right as the Mueller report was coming out and starting to confirm aspects of what we had all kind of been suspecting. But of course, the Mueller report was not as cathartic as a lot of people thought it was going to be. So anyway, <laughs> long story short, that's kind of how that all happened. Well, you talk about kind of diving into this and sort of a five-year journey to now to investigate more and more about it. Can you walk me through that in some detail? Uh, what, what kind of things are you uncovering over time? What are you learning that you can share? 
So it's been a process, and I'll characterize what what I've been doing. You know, I'll differentiate it from what other I think journalists you know in the space have been doing. Instead of being under pressure to like you know write some story or go investigate some specific angle in a kind of a priori way, what I've been doing is really looking at the artifacts. And, you know, what is it that we actually observe out here in the wild? And where did it come from? Uh, So, you know, we see a particular piece of disinformation. The question is, well, what is the source of this? And then you kind of dig into that and you go, okay, um, well, why did they make this? Do we have any idea? Is there some other narrative thread that this came from? Well, yeah, maybe we can tie it to some other set of narratives that we see. And then you go, okay, well, who else, you know, if this was generated by this person, who else is that person connected with? You know, what network of people is this coming from? Okay, well, is that network some historically identifiable network that has existed in the past? And if so, you know, what interest does that network have over the course of years, decades? Or is it a new network? Is it some kind of ad hoc thing that we've never seen before? Okay, well... What is the history that they have pursued and what are the long-term interests of that network? Okay, so are we dealing with, you know, libertarians? Are we dealing with Nazis? Are we dealing with white supremacists? Are we dealing with Russia? Are we dealing with gold bugs? And so at any given time, you've got to be able to kind of figure out what's, what's the sort of motive, right? You know, it's like figuring out a murder or something. So once you kind of figure out those historical threads, then you really reduce this problem to one of competing networks over the course of time. Basically, you know, networks of people that are competing for primacy over one another at any given time. So, you know, it might be Republicans trying to win against Democrats, or it might be white supremacists trying to, you know, blow up a federal building, whatever. There's always some motive and and some history that's linked to this stuff. So that's kind of been the approach. And so, you know, like, one of the very earliest, weirdest things that I found was that there is this woman named Cassandra Fairbanks, who is now married and goes by Cassandra McDonald, who had been present at Ferguson in Baltimore and also had been a Bernie supporter in 2016. But then when Hillary got the nomination in June of 2016, she switched to being a Trump supporter with a great deal of fanfare. I thought that was weird, you know, and also I thought it was weird that she was in Baltimore. She was always in places where there was problems and, you know, shit to stir. So started kind of looking at her and I found that she had lived in the same apartment as a guy named Dennis Klimatov. And Dennis Klimatov went on to be one of the very first people interviewed in the, the Mueller report. And he was the guy who basically coordinated Carter Page's travel to give that speech that he gave in 2016. And so I thought to myself, why is there a connection between this woman who is very strange and this guy, Dennis Klimatov? And so I started looking at who Dennis Klimatov actually was. And it turns out he ran a PR service for the Kremlin called Russ Info Service with his brother, who's named Dimitri. And Dimitri was responsible for the placement of the very first op-eds by Vladimir Putin into the New York Times in 1999-2000 timeframe, as well as an op-ed by Sergei Lavrov. 
into the New York Times. And so I thought, you know, these people aren't nobody. You know, this is people with direct PR ties to the Kremlin. Why is this strange woman living, you know, had lived in the same exact apartment as them? Now, it turned out they hadn't lived there at the same time. I figured that out. They lived there about six weeks apart. And it turned out ultimately that the reason why that was was because she was on payroll with Sputnik, which is Rio Novosti, which is the you know one of the Soviet state-run news agencies. And Dennis Klimatov seems to have been working for Rio Novosti at the time as well. That's what the evidence would indicate. So uh, you know, I started thinking, okay, well that's pretty weird. That's a kind of a weird coincidence. So I started doing a lot of digging into that network around both of them. And it just kind of spidered out from there because, you know, it turns out there's connections between Cassandra Fairbanks and Andy Battelotto, who just got, uh, you know, indicted on the we build the wall thing. And, and so you can basically take any given starting point like that and start doing forensic digging in any given direction and start to figure out the network connections between these folks and, you know, look at what they do, collect the evidence and then make assessments about what they're up to. And sometimes, you know, people that seem like a threat turn out not to be. Sometimes people that you didn't know about come out of nowhere. It's that kind of just really hardcore forensic paying attention to networks and digging using pretty much all open source info. I mean, sometimes, you know, we end up with human sources and various kinds of stuff that finds its way in our direction. But, um, and when I say R, you know, it's important to point out I'm not doing this by myself. There's a whole network of people that are very loosely uh, intertwined around decoding various aspects of these puzzles. I wouldn't say it's organized in any kind of formal way. In fact, the fact that it's not organized in a formal way is, is probably the strongest thing about what's going on right now in this world, because it makes it impossible to infiltrate. If you start to collect you know, everybody into like one room and you start saying, you know, here's a banner where all the open source researchers are going to be. Somebody is going to show up with that and start to cause trouble. And the other thing that is good about keeping these networks of researchers small is that it's impossible for like intergroup rivalries or interpersonal conflicts to really enter into it. And that's something that, you know, we've learned along the way is, is the optimal ways to kind of do this kind of work. It's been fascinating. Honestly, it's been it's been a really, really interesting journey. And I think we're actually getting to the point now where we kind of understand at a really deep level kind of what's going on, which is refreshing. The world is is complicated and there's always people doing stuff and people who have similar prejudices and interests will land in similar spaces. And so like discovering that people are connected it could be important or it could be coincidental and discovering that there are cells or groups or ideologies that, that go back in time, that's always going to be the case. How do you know when something is important and impactful in history, as opposed to just exists alongside the trends that are happening and maybe wasn't that important. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, oh, sure, yeah. The right is got a bunch of open source researchers that are making links between different things and coming up with their theories about how the left is operating. What is different? I'm certain it's different, but what is different about what you and your loosely affiliated 
groups are doing from what the less factually grounded nuts are doing. Yeah. So what I would say is that, you know, the first thing to probably keep in mind with this kind of research is that it's really not political in nature. Um, In fact, we go out of our ways to kind of forget everything there is to know about politics when you're going into some aspects of this, because we're we're really looking at is, is the machinations of power that underlie politics. And a lot of times looking at politics is a bit of a uh, misdirection because uh, if you get too hung up on like who's on the left and who's on the right and which team is doing what, then you really fall into that political rabbit hole of, of kind of being either on one team or another and doing oppo research. And that's, a, you know, a perfectly valid discipline, but that isn't really what we're, what we're doing because at the end of the day, the, the machinations of power will tend to do stuff like bring in elements of the left, bring in elements of the right. So if you actually look deeply at Occupy Wall Street, it contains white supremacists. It contains libertarians. It contains left anarchists. It contains right anarchists. It contains people that want to overthrow the banking system. It contains people that want to replace it with gold. It contains people that want to replace it with Bitcoin. That whole milieu, which a lot of people thought was some kind of left-wing demonstration was in fact this like toxic stew of like left right and middle you know the the great discontented yeah well and it was designed that way in, in a lot of ways because you know by sort of saying you know we are the 99 percent you know that's going to include basically everybody right from both the left and the right and so what that attempt was was really a an effort by some and not everybody knew that this was an explicit effort by some specific people. But there's a long tradition uh, that goes back to people like Francis Parker Yaki, uh, who was a uh, kind of a, he was a really interesting guy. He uh, had been part of some aspect of, of U.S. civil service, forget exactly what his role was, but he had attended the Nuremberg trials in 1947. And his takeaway was that the Nazis got a raw deal. <laughs> Basically. So he wrote this 600 page book called Imperium that basically outlined how the West was a failed construct and how it was going to lead to the suppression of hierarchy and that the Nazis really had kind of a better idea because it, it, it was more informed by the national idea of who they were. And so he ended up dying in 1960, probably because he was being investigated for subversion. Uh, but a guy named Willis Cardo took over Yaki's enterprise and uh, went on to be the leading Holocaust denier. <laughs> and so that whole legacy from Cardo is, is plugs directly into what Alexander Dugan is doing now. And it's this third positionist concept that, you know, yeah, it's a little bit Nazi, but it's also very much anti-democracy and anti-liberalism. And it's basically positing that like liberalism has failed. So what is that? Does that map onto the Republican or Democratic Party neatly? No, it's like a totally different thing. And you can actually find, you know, sort of folks from both the left and the right that will tell you that the liberal project has failed and we need to do something different. So a lot of this something different sentiment has been folded into a lot of the the politics that we see played out now on both the left and the right. And, And the alliance between 
folks on the left and the right to try to enact something different was starting to become noticeable. So we're dealing with this very complex, multifaceted, extremely varied environment that doesn't lend itself to easy left-right categorization. What do you think is the big top-level, I guess you call machination of power? You had mentioned World War III, Putin. What do you think is happening at the top level of what you're worried about? So I would say that, you know, it's taken some time to arrive at this conclusion. And I think it's actually been quite informed by the fact that Putin has, in fact, prosecuted this war that he's uh, pursuing. This kind of conclusion would maybe have been difficult to convince people of uh, in the absence of him demonstrating this will to do this war. But basically, what we're seeing, it looks like, is a unraveling of the Westphalian state sovereignty system that was basically sort of installed into the world in 1648. And for those that are not familiar with this, which, you know, again, this is something I was only peripherally aware of until relatively recently. Um, You know, maybe I had once read about it in some history class. But this was the treaty that ended the Thirty Years' War uh, in Europe. And um, basically, it posits that every country, no matter how big or how small, is entitled to its own sovereignty. So this really informs the basis of the modern world today that we live in. So, you know, the UN Charter is pretty much based on this idea, the idea that every country comes to the table with its sovereign interests, that uh, every country is of equal value, and, you know, everybody is wonderful, and it's all going to work out great. The problem with that model, there's a couple of problems that are sort of concomitant with that, which is, you know, we've kind of put liberal democracy out there as being the exemplar of like what the most evolved state of, of one of these sovereign countries should be. And so it's, it's implicit in the existing world order that that's what people should aspire to. And, you know, I think even you could argue that Francis Fukuyama in 1992, you know, with his book, the end of history argued that not only was that the, most desirable end state, but that it would somehow or another happen automatically. (laughs) If we just, you know, sort of got out of the way, democracy would occur and like Russia would become a democratic. And then we didn't have to do history anymore because everything would be great. We're basically dealing with the aftermath of all of that. The bottom line for Russia is that I think that they feel like that they got screwed in that deal. They basically feel like that that sovereign state system left them without Ukraine They felt like, you know, they really would like to have Ukraine be part of their world. And also, it would be really cool if they could restore their borders, not only to the USSR boundaries. Like, if you actually read the theorists that, like, Putin is riffing on, they're pissed that the the Bolsheviks lost terrain in 1917, right? So they want to go back to the, the Tsarist empire of the late 19th century petty details like Ukraine's status as a sovereign nation and aspirations to join the EU and NATO and all of that, simply not a concern to that worldview. In fact, they consider it just to be invalid, right? So in all of that run-up earlier this year to would he invade or not invade, I mean, I was convinced that 
definitely he was going to invade because why in the hell else would you spend the last 10 years waging a global information war in preparation for a kinetic war that you weren't going to pursue, right? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So I felt quite sure that that invasion was going to happen and even predicted when it was going to happen and was correct about that. What they're basically trying to do now is to move forward in a way that discards the Westphalian state system, which is why whenever anybody brings sort of those issues up, they say, yeah, like, that's cool, but we don't care. <laughs> like, we're doing our own thing. And so everybody's kind of going, like, well, what is your own thing? And it turns out that there has been evolving for the last hundred years or so a whole variety of new ideas about what the global order should look like. Uh, that are not rooted in the Westphalian model. So there's an idea called the noosphere that was theorized by a Russian scientist named Vladimir Vernadsky in around the 1920s that suggests that the Earth will naturally evolve to a state where it becomes conscious itself as a planetary being. And when that happens... I know all of the hardship and the trials and the domination and the wars and the Jews and everything else that they've been concerned about are going to just melt away and everything's going to be great. And that's going to be an end state called Gaia. This idea was popularized further by uh, a French uh, paleontologist Catholic priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who developed an idea called the Omega Point. Uh, as part of this, uh, that basically suggests that when the Earth is ready to go into this noospheric state, that there would be a lot of trials and tribulations and earthquakes and fires and deaths of leaders and uprisings. And this idea system around no noosphere is quite well known in Russia amongst political theorists and whatnot. And, and Putin's chief of staff is a guy named Anton Vaino, and his claim to fame. Uh, before he became chief of staff in 2016, was that he invented a noscope, or claims to have. He wrote a, his PhD dissertation on how he inv invented a noscope, which was supposed to be some kind of a device that could sort of measure our transition into the noosphere using social media data and I don't know what, a whole variety of information that he claimed to have collected. And if you read the paper, it's kind of nonsense. But just because it's insane nonsense doesn't mean that that's not what they're doing, right? <laughs> Basically, this noosphere idea has been picked up by, it seems like, Putin. Uh, all, all of the disinformation stuff that we're seeing matches this. And it's also been picked up by a lot of other, you know, what I might call new age or alternative kind of theorists, including folks like Elon Musk. All of this stuff with like long-termism that you're starting to hear about from William McCaskill and whatnot, it's a derivation of Russian cosmism, which is coming straight out of this stuff with Bernanski and whatnot. So we're reaching a moment right now where a lot of these strange sort of inexplicable things that seem unrelated are actually related to the breakdown of the Westphalian system and the proposal by Putin and others that this noosphere idea is a better replacement for the Westphalian system. If there's any particular failure that maybe we have um, left unanswered right now, it's that 
the West uh, has not put forth some kind of like Westphalia 3.0 version that's like, you know, okay, well, this is the positive future vision that we have for state sovereignty uh, going forward. And instead, Putin kind of has the initiative at the moment, in some ways, in putting forth this alternative vision in the absence of any other alternative vision. And the only thing that the West can articulate right now is, oh, well, let's just go back to the 1648 model because that was working so well, which I think to a lot of people, particularly in the global South and in uh, developing countries and in Russia, they don't really believe that that Westphalian model has been working so well. And the fact that we aren't talking about this at all is, I think, you know, to our great global collective detriment. So that's kind of where things sit. There's obviously room for discussion. You know, there's also the possibility that, no, I'm wrong about that. But given where I am in this research and understanding of it, I don't think that I'm wrong. I mean, I think it's possible that the understanding is as yet incomplete and there's more to learn because there's always more to learn. And there may be fine tunings of that. But I think fundamentally, that's what we're up against. You think that the disinformation that we're experiencing is rooted in Putin wanting to undo the fix he's in with his boundary, basically? Yeah, basically. And not just the boundary, the entire relationship between the Russian civilization and the rest of the world. They see themselves in a civilizational bind um, where, you know, they're like Rodney Dangerfield. They don't get enough respect. They want to have a bigger role. They want to be treated more seriously. They also are really, really sick of dollar dominance. And that's the other part of this that's right under the surface, which is they do not like the dollar as a reserve currency. They want to basically replace the dollar as a reserve currency with currencies that are tied to the BRICS trading bloc. So for those listening, you know, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, plus whatever other countries they can pull into this, which might include Iran. And so they want to basically do a hard currency for that trading block that's rooted in um, metals-backed tokens. So basically, nickel, copper, palladium, gold, silver... They want to make it so that, you know, you can have hard currency that you hold electronically that you can trade in for those metals, which would basically put the world back onto something like the gold standard. And they think that they can cause the shift by effectively eroding the power of the U.S., EU, NATO by ganging up on them, which, you know, I mean, if you think about the BRICS countries, that's around 3 billion people. If you think about the NATO countries, that's around a billion plus people. There's some sort of nominal logic to the idea that you could dominate uh, this smaller section with this larger group. I think most people listen to that kind of plan and go, well, that sounds kind of either crazy or at the very best aspirational. And I think that's right. I think it's very aspirational. But when you think about what they're doing, where they're basically betting the entire future of their country on playing through this entire set of power shifts, which, oh, by the way, include maybe taking over the U.S. government because that kind of has part of, been part of their plan. And they may need to do that in order to kind of keep their guy out of hot water. You know, we'll see how that goes. It's a total reversal in the world order is what, they, what they're what they trying to pursue. Is that crazy? Probably. But that's what they seem to be doing. 
You mentioned you wanted some kind of entrepreneurial solution. What do you have in mind? Well, so, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of this stuff that could have been potentially spotted sooner and nipped in the bud had there been more intelligence available. So, for example, I'll go so far as to say something like 99% of the coverage of phenomena like QAnon, it's just been completely worthless. Like, it's either been engineered to be wrong and misleading, or it's been completely devoid of any helpful content at all. And the reasons for that are, you know, some editor is going to go tell some writer who has no background with studying this stuff and say, you know, go write a story about QAnon. It seems like crazy Republican nonsense. And they go, okay, sure. So I wrote a story about QAnon. Here's 800 words, you know, and that gets run. It doesn't mean anything. It has no value, no content, no bearing on what's actually going on. That becomes the frame through which we see this stuff. So what I think, you know, could potentially be done either as a nonprofit thing or a for-profit thing is to come up with something like a public intelligence agency where, you know, we basically gather up information that provides context for specific people, specific storylines, particular artifacts, anything that needs sort of analysis by journalists to give them a head start so that when they are diving into something, they're not coming at it from like ground zero. They actually have some clear context of where this stuff comes from, what it is, why it exists, um, and a better frame for interpreting it so that we're not then running down the road with a bad frames and then having to correct them later. It's just something that needs to happen. Like, you know, we, we could have had a much deeper, more nuanced understanding, like all the stuff that I just said about the Westphalian system and the noosphere, that could have been a conversation that we could have been having uh, at least two years ago. Cause a lot of this stuff, you know, was well enough established even then, if anybody had been able to look at it in enough detail all of the stuff that we're figuring out now is coming from sources from like 2013 and 2016 and 2018, but it's about how, knowing what questions to ask. And unfortunately we haven't known what questions to ask. That's my hypothesis. I think there's a gap there between, you know, what's available and, and what is, and that's usually a place where entrepreneurs of some kind can fill a void. I like the idea of what you call the artifacts of this and looking at that and seeing where it goes. I don't have the background to connect it in the way that you do, nor have I looked at it, obviously. So it sounds outlandish to me that there's this cabal that is focused on noosphere or lot, but I do understand that there are lots of cabals that are focused on lots of different things and that are influencing politics and government in often unpleasant ways. Well, we saw that on January 6th. We know tons of them. We know they exist. This is not something I know about. So I'm trying to incorporate that into how I think about things. If if you were talking to uh, another congressman or what do you think is the most persuasive argument for having such a public intelligence enterprise and how it would serve the country? What do you think would make that move towards actually happening? Well, I don't think you have to look very far to find good examples of such arguments. And I think it was 1998, Daniel, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a book about secrecy 
that basically argued that the American intelligence community's over-reliance on secrecy was leading to a lot of distrust of government and a lot of stuff being kept secret that really didn't need to be kept secret. Sounds very plausible. And I'm sure it's true. Yeah. You know, starting with that sort of an argument where basically you say, look, you know, the public has a right and a need. There's a public health need. There's a public governance need for good access to intelligence, right? So, you know, you start out with asserting that that's, you know, a need. And and the fact that we had incidents like January 6th happen, the fact that we've had incidents like 9-11 happen are all things that could have been potentially... And and the fact that our politics is massively infected right now by disinformation and by people... Yeah, making speculation about secrets and all of this. Just people who, I mean, there's a whole 30% of our country that is enmeshed in the big lie, let's just say, and all the related elements. We have a serious problem right now. Do you have any other proposals in addition to like this kind of investigation for combating that major problem we have politically? You know, one thing that I would say if I was talking to like a congressperson would be, you know, perhaps there should be some kind of, you know, legislatively defined process for declassifying information in a very particular way that makes it not only more available, but, you know, maybe available through some kind of a, you know, a a network of, of nonprofits or through a designated contractor or whatever it is. There needs to be some kind of pipeline that says, you know, if this stuff is is in the pipeline, you know, in, it's sitting in government repositories and kept secret for X amount of time, it is going to be put up for review for declassification through this clearly defined process after X amount of time. And, you know, I'm sure we have all kinds of things that are mirroring aspects of that right now. I don't mean to suggest that we don't have anything like that. And I do think that like FBI and CIA and other agencies have been pretty responsible in terms of releasing stuff that is of public interest and also being responsive to FOIA requests and that kind of thing. But if you put in place a process that like that, that says, if this is secret, X is going to happen in the future, that is going to have an impact on the behavior of people who have the choice to make things secret because they're going to have to think, okay, do I want this to be known in 10 years or 12 years or 15 years or whatever the the number is? And it'll just change the behavior a little bit. So I just think these aren't necessarily huge changes in terms of how we do stuff. But I think if you combine the capacity for uh, open source research uh, that can be vetted in a way similar to like what Wikipedia does, but perhaps with a little bit more orientation towards structured data and APIs and stuff like that. And then you combine that with like resources that are flowing in from government. That could be a really powerful tool because I'll be really honest, you know, where we are right now, we are at a kindergarten level understanding of the world relative to what's actually happening. And there is no excuse for that. In order for us to be a informed, functional democracy uh, or republic, or however you want to refer to our system, uh, we have to have better information, and we do not right now. And it's it's absolutely crippling our capacity to do anything. It's hurting people's lives. It's hurting our economy. It's hurting our governance. It's hurting our idea about ourselves, and it's hurting the planet. I know that you've done a series of interviews of people for your podcast. If you were going to highlight a couple people that you think are 
looking at the right threads who are helping us create a better understanding, who would you point to? There's so many people that have been doing great work, and I've been so blessed to be able to um, interview a lot of them on this podcast. Basically, what I'm doing with the podcast is kind of highlighting um, conversations that that help us get to a you know a deeper understanding of what's going on. So people like Ann Nelson, who documented the Council for National Policy, that's a pretty partisan uh, view of things, but at the same time, like she did a terrific job of digging into that and figuring out what made it tick. And, and, you know, anybody that's interested in that topic can take that information and plug it into a broader landscape. The work done by um, people like Monique uh, Kamara, who's been doing daily analysis of what's going on in not only uh, Ukraine, but in Europe. She lives in Italy and has been studying the reascent of of, um, fascism there with Georgia, Georgia Maloney and whatnot. You know, she's on the front lines doing great work. Ruth Ben-Ghiat has, you know, written her terrific book, uh, Strongmen, all about, uh, you know, how Mussolini came to power. James Scaminacci is an expert on, uh, you know, fourth generation warfare, which is really crucial to understand some of the processes that are being used right now to manipulate society. I can't not recommend any of these conversations in this podcast. They're all uh, really, really essential for understanding what's happening. And that's why I'm doing them because I realized that, you know, as I'm learning these things, there's a need to get it to people so that they they have the, the opportunity to have the same kind of understanding in real time. And every one of these episodes is vital. I um, have recorded some new episodes. It's a real gift, you know, to be able to do it. And I just hope that, you know, people can take advantage of taking some time to listen to some of these because it really has has been helpful. And I hear that from people. They say, you know, I didn't understand any of this until I started listening to to your podcast. And there's plenty of other podcasts that are doing great work as well. But I really try to focus on content. There's not a lot of ads or anything. It's just straight hit to the brain of information. So, Well, you are a person who has put a lot into this. That's appreciated. Uh, Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? I guess, uh, you know, it might be interesting to talk about where some of this work might be going because it's very much, you know, in media res right now, you know. Where do you think some of this work might be going? Well, I do think, you know, I do want to pursue some of these ideas around, uh, you know, setting up some kind of permanent intelligence capacity for journalists and for the public. Um, but uh, there's probably a, a pretty lengthy piece that is about to, you know, come to fruition in uh, Washington Spectator about all this noospheric stuff. I think it's going to be quite revelatory to people because I just this is not in the the, the Western conversation at all. Really, um, the few times that it's um, popped up, it's been treated as a curiosity. And um, what I'm learning from my um, Russian contacts is that they're actually quite familiar with this set of concepts. Like this is part of the Russian worldview. So I, I hope to be able to bridge that in a way that isn't gimmicky or trying to oversimplify something because this is anything but simple. It's very complex and um, I hope to be able to give it the proper nuance. So that said, there's enough information here to do a book for sure. Um, I don't know whether I have enough time to do a book because, or at least by myself, because 
oh my God, like <laughs> the stuff we're finding is just layers and layers deep. What's nice about it is that it's not diverting us into like weird new directions. It's more looping back in on itself, which suggests that we've got the, the through line right now. It's a question of filling in the appropriate detail and figuring out what needs to be there to tell the story properly and, and to help people understand it. So probably a book is coming too, but uh, you know, it's probably going to take some time. All right. Well, good luck with that. Anything else you want to say? No, just if folks want to check out my podcast, it's on uh, all the podcasting platforms. It's called Dave Troy Presents. And uh, you can also check out my work uh, on Washington Spectator. I am going to be starting a monthly column there uh, this month. So look for that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I will also put links to my stuff on my uh, webpage, which is DaveTroy.com. Okay. Thanks much, Dave. That was Dave Troy. He's at about.davetroy.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.